Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'll be your host today, Paige Niedringhouse, and I am joined by some of our regular panelists. We've got Carl Mungazi. Hey. And we have TJ Van Toll. Hey, everybody. And we are joined today by our very special guest, Ronnie Zipelwar. And I hope I got that last name right. It's a little bit challenging. But Ronnie, welcome. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what we're going to talk about today, why you're famous? Hi, everyone. I'm Ronnie Zipelwar. I am very honored to be here. Thank you for having me. And I don't quite know if I'm famous. I'm just someone who likes to blog about things I've learned about through my software engineering travels. I was in QA for well over 10 years, so I'm aging myself. And I made the decision to go into software development. Uh, right now, I am a software engineering consultant at A-Flight, which is a software engineering, software consulting company. And I have had the privilege of working in pretty much every stage of the software development life cycle. So I've gotten to write requirements at some point. I'm developing right now. I have worked in testing. I've done some management. I've done production support. So that person that you would call when your cable TV was out, I did a stint at Cablevision and got yelled at quite a number of times that the TV wasn't working and help me, help me. So yeah, I really enjoyed um, having a holistic approach to software development. So that's the little spiel about me. That's awesome. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. I mean, that's that gives you such a good insight, I guess, into the whole development lifecycle of software. So that's very cool. But I'm, I'm really interested. You said that you went from QA to just regular development and consulting. How did you do that? Because I think that that's probably a question that a lot of people have. If they're doing one role, how did you make the transition into another part of the, the development cycle? Yes. So for me, I think for anyone who wants to be a career changer, it's important to work on the skill set that you're trying to transition into. So I at the company that I was working at, it was a very tech-oriented company. We had the tech stack UC Sharp. That's where I kind of like first navigated into. So I would just try to learn the language itself, best practices. I would talk a lot with the developers so that way I can understand, you know, that the changes they made. I would often go poke into the repos and try to see what changes they made. So I would find more bugs because there were more edge cases when you open up the code and it's not just a black box. I suggest to 
doing a lot of practice coding. So Leap Code, HackerRank are really great sites. There are so two sites that I really suggest that I found to be super helpful are Interview Cake, which essentially teaches coding problems um, that you will actually explain the why behind what makes a solution valuable. That's something that I hadn't found before and I thought it was super helpful and grokking the system design interview is super helpful because it's very similar in that it will explain the why and how to you know shift your mindset towards that. I also suggest like for for career changers like me, it was very difficult to go and apply for jobs and say, you know, I would like to be junior developer for jobs that needed experience, but I couldn't get the job to get the experience. So that's very difficult, but I would suggest trying different avenues. Like Eighth Light has an apprenticeship program where you spend six months on average working on projects and working with mentors who are full-time engineers and you read tons of books and you delve into that environment in a very safe, supported way. So when you do become full-time, it's a lot easier. And the company has spent effort on developing your skill set and teaching you the things that they they kind of level the playing field. So that way, when you graduate, they're confident in your abilities because they've been teaching you this for the last six months. So I highly recommend apprenticeships as a foot in the door. You know, that changed my life. And I'm super grateful for Ape Light for seeing something in me and believing in me. And it's just been a wonderful experience. So I highly recommend alternative avenues for people who are looking to change careers. The career journey is sort of fascinating to me, partially because it's interesting because the lines between development and QA are like a little bit fuzzy, right? There's definitely some overlap. Like when you write end-to-end tests as a developer, I mean, that's kind of a QA sort of thing. So I'm curious, what sort of things have you been able to bring? Like, how is your experience as a as your QA background? How has that helped you in the development world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the project that I'm on, there are no QA people. So developers are QA. So different companies, you know, approach it very differently. And for me, I it's like I've been on both sides of the fence. So as a QA person, the developers got annoyed because I would come with bugs. And they need to fix it. And I'm just like, all right, let me try it again. And now as a developer, I'm uh, trying to be the developer that QA people really enjoy working with because I'm thinking about test cases while I'm developing. I'm thinking about requirements while I'm building the code. I'm thinking about the behaviors that the clients will express when utilizing the app and to see if there's usability in there. So I have the multiple hats all at the same time and it makes for feature building. It makes it a lot easier because then you're not like building something and the client can't use it. And then it's like, all right, I just wasted my time. Yeah, I mean, I I really kind of chime in with your um, background in the sense that I came into programming as a journalist. So whilst not in tech like you, like you were, I um, had to learn outside of work and in my case, it was, it took me 14 months to be able to get from not, not knowing anything to get hired in my first job. And that was basically after work, spending a lot of time um, just learning how to code and things like Free Code Camp, Code Academy at the beginning. 
and going to meetups, um, talking to devs and not having a clue what they're talking about, but being in that environment. And then um, when I then came into programming, in my case, I found that because I'd been a journalist, I had soft skills, which I developed. And that helped me when I then came to talk to other people in the business. So I think that that definitely helps in having a background that's maybe not tech heavy and then you come in and you've got, like you said, the different hats and you can kind of see the whole life cycle of a product from a, from a, 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 a different angle, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've been just trying to absorb like a sponge technical skills and it really helps to put yourself into that environment like meetups is a great example where it's like go and sit with the people that talk tech so you can in the beginning it was just like I don't know it's a different language to me and now it's like hey I can kind of join with you and talk about you know things soft skills are paramount you know to have empathy for the people that you work with that aren't exactly in the roles that you're in really helps because when you show that you're a team player, you're out there to achieve the same goal that they're looking to achieve, it changes it. And I can recommend books that have helped me develop my people skills. So that way people feel good about having me on their team. Emotional Intelligence 2.0 is a phenomenal book that helps you understand people and where they come from. Um, I'm right now, I'm listening to an audible book from Vanessa Van Edwards called Captivate. And that is phenomenal in that it shows you how to interact with people of different personalities and just how to improve your conversation skills. You know, it's great to have there, there is an advantage to being someone who's not just born out of a CS degree who's been developing their whole career because you have the ability to interact with the soft skills and have those soft skills and that can make it or break it. So yeah, definitely being able to work with people like you don't go into tech to just work with computers. Unfortunately, it's not like that. You're dealing with people more than you're dealing with, with technology a lot of times. So it really helps. So when you were learning, did you take the approach of um, creating your own kind of syllabus, if you like, of topics which you um, wanted to learn and then you would basically kind of go through it? Or did you just basically learn things as they came up in in what you're trying to explore? Um, Because, I mean, in my case, I initially just basically jumped into it, right? And then over time, I saw that if I had maybe started by making a list of different topics and then going through them step by step, I could probably learn a bit faster. So I don't know how you kind of found that that journey on your end. Yeah, that's a really good question. For me, I've always struggled with finding a project to work on. There's so many ideas out there on the internet, the hundred best projects to work on. And like, I, I look through the list and I can't figure out, like I can't start is my difficulty. During my apprenticeship, my mentor would tell me, okay, go build a compiler in Erlang or go build an echo server in Java. And I will say, yes, I will do it. You you decided for me. I will I will start this. However, those after are, that those huh? are some intense tasks. <laughs> <laughs> they were basic. Yeah. They were very, very simple. Very simple. <laughs> I would have expected, like, let's build a grocery list. Tyler <laughs> and Erlang seems like yeah. uh, <laughs> seems like it's like five hundred one level material there. <laughs> it was the basics of a compiler. Let's let's say that. <laughs> um, but once I had the, you know, once I was given the idea, I would 
kind of methodically go towards, okay, what is the language, you know, find katas, K-A-T-A, which means like they're really good ways of learning the language itself. Then find out best practices, find out like the best ways to design it. Is it functional? Is it object oriented? What does that mean? Do I need to learn those ideas? And then, you know, start working on a skeleton, something we call like a walking skeleton of how to build this and, you know, test TDD. A-Flight's very big on TDD. I'm still trying to be an aficionado. I'm still learning it after the two years of developing, Um, but it's a phenomenal practice. And so just like going through the steps to incrementally build out what I'm working on has helped me. So you said that you've, your mentor would have you, I guess, use different languages. How many different programming languages have you had the opportunity to learn? And what are you using, I guess, most typically in some of your projects now or your consulting practices? Um, So I've only been doing this for a couple of years. I can safely say at least five different languages. You know, I've, I've worked in, I've, I've had the luck of working in a functional language, but mostly it's very object-oriented, like C-sharp. It's funny because when I first started learning this, I I started with C-sharp. I went through Ruby and JavaScript and different, different languages. And then the the client that I'm working on is back with C-sharp and JavaScript. So it's full circle yet again. (laughs) Nice. Do you... um... Do you find that you enjoy any particular language more than the others or just whatever the client wants and whatever the, I guess, solution would benefit most from? Yeah, I mean, particularly for me, C-sharp is is where my heart is. I, I just really enjoy the language. I love the IntelliSense. I love, you know, just thinking about OOP. But yeah, the other half of this question is really what really serves the purpose. Like sometimes Python is really great for certain reasons. So you don't really want to say that everything should be C-sharp because that's not really good design, good practice. It's it's what is useful for where you are. And sometimes it's what is the client using right now that they favor. But, you know, it's interesting to know that there are common themes across languages. So I really enjoy being a polyglot. Yeah, that's one of the things that I noticed because I also am a non-traditional software developer. I was in marketing and digital advertising before this. And for almost the past five years now, I've been doing development. And JavaScript was the first language that I really learned. And then right after that, in my coding boot camp, we learned Python. And it was amazing to me how much quicker Python was to pick up once I had a basic understanding of things like strings and booleans and numbers and from JavaScript. And then once I started working for my company, my team uses Java for all of our backends. So I've learned the object-oriented style of doing everything. And again, it's, you know, it's a little bit, Java is a little bit more specific in it cares about longs and and shorts and <laughs> a little bit more about those sorts of things, types. But still, it makes a whole lot more sense to me than I think if I was coming in completely blind and not knowing any sort of programming beforehand. It's definitely easier to pick up a new language now than I think it would be if you were starting from ground zero. Yeah, definitely. And JavaScript is one of those languages I've been using it for a couple of years and it still has these quirky behaviors that just confuses me. <laughs> yes. 
So when, when you have a new language, are there things you do to try to maybe get a grasp of the syntax, a grasp of the features, and just get a, a good kind of general overview of the language itself and maybe what you could do with it? So whenever I start a new language, I try to find coding katas and pretty much every language has it online where you can find a GitHub repo where someone took the phenomenal effort of writing up different katas. And it's it's kind of like a fun way of learning the language and it incrementally builds up different syntax that you need to learn to utilize the language. I look into best practices because that will tell you for this particular language, what is the best way to utilize it. And it can delve into design, you know, like you wouldn't write Java the way you would use React or C, uh, or Ruby, you know, so different things tailored for different usability styles. I tend to, so like React is something that I've been using a lot. So I, I will sign up for newsletters. So like I have, I think it's called React Status. I signed up for that. So all things React all the time. I really enjoy it because it feeds you information. So that way, because a lot of times it's, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what to look up. Sometimes you don't know what the best way to use things are. That's how I learned about the rules of hooks. You know, I got a newsletter that says, Oh, this is something that reacts, you know, utilizing right now. This is something that is important in react for best practices. And then I was like, Oh, what is this? Let me click the link. Um, front-end focus is a great newsletter because that's all front-end. I subscribe to general programming. I just subscribe to general programming newsletters like Programming Digest. That's just general concepts. So I like newsletters because they feed you information for the things that you don't know, that you don't know what to look for. It kind of like helps guide you a little bit. So speaking of not knowing things, I one question I have, I'm I'm very ignorant of tooling in the sort of QA and testing space. I'm curious if there's any tools that you think developers should know about that can help you test your apps, uh, like either automated testing, some, w- whether it's aimed either at developers or QAs or both. I'm, I'm just kind of curious what's out there, uh, things that people might want to check out. Yeah, so it's interesting with testing, there's, you need to think about what kind of tests you're writing. So on my website, elevateyourcode.com, I've got an article on there on how to write good unit tests. How can you, you know, testing, unit tests is part of testing. I've also got some information on what kind of tests you really want to write. So like, if you think about the test pyramid, you're, 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 majority of your tests are unit tests. Then you would have integration tests, which kind of test the edges of your application. And you have UI tests. And there are a lot of testing frameworks out there, like Selenium is a big one, you know, where pretty much the majority of people use WebDriver IO. I'm sorry, WebDriver. I actually, on the client that I've working on, I've used WebDriver IO. So it kind of sits on top of Selenium and it's a little bit easier in terms of building tests because the syntax a little is a little bit easier. Cypress is another testing tool, but you have to take a look at the pros and cons because for one example, if you if your site redirects to a different site, you can't really use Cypress for that. It it doesn't, it's not able to handle that. So sometimes depending on what application you have and its behaviors, it'll define what can you use 
One thing I'm still trying to figure out is how to have super, super stable end-to-end tests. So that way they don't flake out and fail because your endpoint's too slow. That's really a struggle that I'm still trying to figure out. Even now that I'm developing, I kind of get into the technical aspects of it. But yeah, there are, there are still things that I'm trying to figure out in that respect. Do you see, are those all still under the line of developer tools? Like, is there another classification of tools that are like almost aimed more at QA people and not developers as well? Yeah, I mean, Cucumber is something that I've I've used very sparingly where you can build acceptance tests and really hand it off. If you develop the framework, you can hand off the test to the business or QA people to build additional tests. It's just um, you really need to know how to build the tests in a way that they are reusable. Making tests that are reusable and kind of like a factory to build more and more tests upon, you have to do it in the right way. So that way it is easy to make them reusable. But Cucumber is a really good tool for that kind of stuff. I think part of the reason I'm asking is I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on like what the sort of ideal setup is for an organization for developers and QAs and who tests what and how these groups interact. And considering you have experience on both sides, do you like, I'm curious what you think the sort of ideal workflow is for like where we draw the line between what developers test, what QAs test and the way that that can work, I guess, most optimally. I almost feel like you're asking about processes, like what an agile. Uh, in a sense, like, I'm just sort of curious, like what, what testing process do you think works best? Like who owns which tests? Um, is it QAs that, that do it? Is it developers that do it and how all that can work? So for me, I think that is kind of like thinking about a race. If you, I don't know the name, what the exact name of this race is, but if you think about like pass the baton where you have a race and like you've a got the business, race, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So if you have the business analysts go and write some requirements, it's static content, they pass the baton to the developers, the developers write up some code based on their assumptions, you pass the baton to QA, QA's write tests, and then you have some back and forth batoning between QA and dev, and then finally it, it hits the end of the race. I don't particularly think that's the ideal way of doing things because of the atmosphere that we're in. How many times have you seen a client change the requirements on the fly? Realize what they really needed was apples when, you, when you've when you been building oranges this whole time. Or maybe they just don't like citrus fruits at all. <laughs> and now it's like, what do you do? I really think that this is more of like a four-legged race where your business, your your technical people, your testers, DevOps, all work towards a common goal. So that is more like how agile is right now, right? When I think agile, I'm thinking adaptation, communication, trust, and autonomy. So agile has been, if you do agile really well, then you can have great productivity, you can have a significant reduction in bugs, and you can have client satisfaction. And the reason why it works so well is because Adaptation, you can quickly adjust to changing requirements. You have the ability to pivot. You've got open lines of communication, both within your team 
and you've got open lines of communication with the departments that you work with. Trust and autonomy is where you trust, companies trust the people they hire and allow teams to have the autonomy to make changes, to improve the status quo, to to make decisions on process and make decisions technically. So QA and dev are really partners, right? They, a lot of times the things that QA does helps helps developers develop what they need to develop for the clients who ask. So let me let me try to see if I can say it in a different way. Developers and QA are really partners. So you know when you tend to have developers that develop everything and then pass the baton to QA, QAs test what they can test and pass the baton down the line or backwards because something may not work. It's I don't think that is the ideal way of doing things. You really need people working together. You know, QA has value in terms of thinking about cases, but oftentimes that gets filled by business analysts. Like I've seen it where business analysts are the testers because they've written the requirements, they know what to test. You know, QA can help developers think about the behaviors that you want to validate. But developers can take those scenarios and build them into their unit tests and not have tons and tons of end-to-end tests. That the problem with end-to-end tests is that they can be flaky. And when something breaks, you don't really know what broke, right? Because you're going through the entire stack top to bottom. You have no idea if it's an endpoint that changed. You don't know if it's the UI that changed. It's very difficult, but UI tests have their place. Like end-to-end tests have their place where you want to have regression protected. So that way you know that whatever changes you make, the behaviors of the application remain stable. So different things have their place, but I really believe that teams need to work together as a cohesive unit in order for it to be successful. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I'm curious, since you mentioned the end-to-end test, because that part especially resonated with me, because... I know for from previous experience, I found end-to-end tests both incredibly useful and also incredibly frustrating at the same time because they are very flaky. So you're saying you're working on perfecting it, but I'm I'm wondering if you just have tips and tricks for people to like write end-to-end tests that aren't super flaky. Um, anything you'd recommend to people? Um, so just in general, have a minimal set of end-to-end tests. So that way you, if you think of the testing pyramid, they should be the thing at the top at the point where it's just a little tiny triangle. So you really just want a a small set of these tests. So that way it's just checking baseline regression, all the, the, the basic functionality of your app from start to finish that you want to check and avoid having duplications in these tests. So if you check something once in one test, try to avoid doing the same thing again in another test. You don't want duplication, except for login. Like if you need every test has to log in, can't really avoid that, right? But 
that's kind of like a separate aspect of this. This is just setting up the test. Another tip I have is try to figure out um, timeouts because sometimes these tests will actually just fail because it just times out. Maybe your application is slow in this particular aspect of it. There are different, uh, depending on what testing framework you have, you can actually have a global timeout if your application is just generally slow or if you have a certain function that you do, like if you have um, some kind of endpoint that posts and creates a record, but that post is very slow, you can actually increase the timeout for that. So that way it just, it will take the five seconds that it takes to create this record. You don't want your test to fail just because this is a part of your application you haven't optimized yet. When it comes to finding elements in your end-to-end test, what I tend to do is like try to work with your developers to uniquely identify these fields. Um, you could have something as simple as a name property. So all of these input boxes have a name, like your first name, your last name. Try to have some stable property in your application that your end-to-end test can identify and put data into. When the application is changing on the fly, it's very difficult to, for your end-to-end test to try to identify and put in data into input fields. So hopefully the QA team is able to work with the developers to have some stability in the application, to have fields that they can properly latch into consistently. Yep, makes sense. Yeah, because I've, I've definitely fallen into the trap before of having tests that sort of assume like, oh, I'm just going to tab to the next field. Well, then you add a new field and boom, right? <laughs> the whole thing breaks. <laughs> yeah, definitely try not to do that. Try to identify the field <laughs> wherever it is. I mean, e- even like you don't want your test to fail just because a uh, section has moved. Unfortunately, UI tests don't look at you know, like, hey, has your application turned upside down? Because that will still pass with your, your end-to-end <laughs> tests. Um, but they're written in a way that, like, yes, if you add a new field in there, it shouldn't break. I tend to just get rid of tests if they're way too flaky. Like, just like if you have unit tests that are flaky, it's better to delete them or change them so they're completely stable. So try to have like a limited number of stable tests than like a thousand flaky tests because the problem with that is people just stop looking at them and then the value of having them go, goes away. Yeah, it's well said. I've definitely experienced that when it comes to things like snapshot testing. We just update components and the snapshots get out of date and you just hit the button and get the snapshots updated and never actually look to see what changed if it was supposed to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, for that, we actually use um, Percy. She actually tests the visual elements of UI. And how we use it is with Percy, it's part of our um, CIS uh, pipeline, where whenever we push code to GitHub, we run tests on each, on each uh, basically, as part of Cypress. So Cypress has as an add-on with Percy, which lets you run your end-to-end tests. And then at the end of each test, if you want to, you have a, a snapshot of the UI at that say, at the moment in time. So then if you then make a change in the next pull request, that maybe you, ch- you changed even like a margin or padding, right? And it was by accident, that CFR will, will fail because it's seen that difference between the two UIs. And in our case, it's helped us actually stop a lot of regressions 
with the visual elements of our application because now we know that whenever we push in the code in, we have more confidence that the UI looks as we uh, meant it to be from the first kind of um, iterations. And yeah, so that, that, that's how we kind of handled that issue and um, have basically abandoned um, taking snapshots because, yeah, I found those really annoying and not really helpful at all. I've also tried to do video recording, like WebDriver.io lets you record videos of the tests. So that way, if we have it in continuous integration, so when the application code changes, it triggers the acceptance tests to run. And you can actually see videos of the test that failed. So you can bring up the video file and see, like, was it some just flaky behavior? Was it a timeout or did something actually change? So that's kind of helpful as well. I had a question um, earlier. You mentioned um, about uh, maybe test time because the API is too slow. So what do you recommend? Because in our case, we are mocking some of the APIs only because if service, for example, is down for um, any reason, the tests are fine, but then tests will fail because not because the, the test uh, or the code is wrong, but because it's, the API is down. So in that situation, how do you do that? Do you, do you recommend just basically talking to the API all the time or mocking parts of it? Or how do you handle that kind of case? Just to make sure I understood, you've got end-to-end tests where the APIs are mocked, but yeah, in reality... The real API has changed in some way that it causes a regression. No, so that sometimes if the API uh, service is just down for a reason, let's say we do, we do a pull request now, and let's say in, a, in the last hour it's going down for X reasons, right? But tests themselves are fine. In that situation, how would you handle that? Would it be a case of mocking is better than actually talking to the APIs all the time? And uh, what, what's best in your opinion and from your experience? So like, I mean, it's not technically an end-to-end test, in my opinion, if you're mocking part of the, the code. Okay. If these were APIs for third-party vendors, I would say, like, have contract tests, you know, create PACT test, P-A-C-T. So that way you have tests that's specifically oriented around the API itself. That way you can tell if their their code has changed it. it it's a way of identifying the source, the root cause of the error. End-to-end, end-to-end tests are great because they protect against regression, but they are difficult in determining where the error lies. So I wouldn't rely on end-to-end tests to only determine any and all cases. You know, I would have tests for API, unit tests for the APIs themselves. So that way, if behavior changes, I'll know immediately the source of the problem. So try to have your tests be very, I guess, end-to-end tests aren't the end-all for any for all testing. You really want to have different types of tests that test different things because as a developer, if you are the one who has to maintain and identify and fix the tests, you want to make it as easy as possible to identify the source of the problem. Cool, thank you. So Ronnie, how did you... or what what was the impetus, I guess, for you to start writing about what you're learning and, you know, start elevateyourcode.com? Was it, was it something in particular or you just wanted to kind of solidify and have something to look back on as you were going or what, what inspired you to start doing that? Yeah, so a couple of years ago when I was still new to programming, I was working on this tricky issue and I couldn't quite figure out how to solve it. And I found a blog post online where an engineer had explained how they solved the issue. 
And she took the time to explain the problem, explain her solution, and it worked for me. It it saved my bacon. And I was able to proceed with what I was working on. And I was really happy about it. So that's how I approach blogging. I want I like sharing what that works best for me and giving back to the community that's have helped support me in my trials and tribulations. I realized that I had enough articles on medium.com that, hey, maybe it's time to make my own website. So elevateyourcode.com is uh, the website that I created very recently. And I pretty much put all my, as all my like favorite articles, if you will, onto that website. And I would like to use that as a platform to, to just share my insights, to share my 2020 hindsight, the things that helped for me. And I like to think of it as documentation as well. So when I come back to using React again, I can, I can look at the articles that I've written to, to kind of help refresh my memory. I have definitely found myself doing the same thing. Like I remember I wrote an article about using NVM to switch node development environments locally, which is something that I do pretty regularly between different projects at work. And I have certainly gone back since then when I've needed to reinstall it or update it or (laughs) add it to a new machine. So having those articles is definitely, it's good for other people, but it's also just as good for me. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's almost like a journal that you can look back at because I, I swear, like over the years, you do this long enough, you totally forget the stuff you were working on. And sometimes it's amazing how sometimes those things come back up. Yeah, absolutely. And like pair programming is great in that you can learn from one person, but it's only one person. When you write a blog, you can reach people that you would never have been able to interact with. And it's wonderful. What's your workflow when you um, have an idea for a blog post? Um, do you um, have any particular um, way of, or thing that you do to kind of go from um, the draft idea, the research to publication and then promotion? Yeah, so half the time my blogs are really coming from me trying something and saying, oh man, I really wish there was this thing online because I've been looking for it and I haven't found it. And then it's like, you know what? when I figure it out, let me just write a blog. So I wrote a blog on dependency injection and React because myself and my coworker, we're trying to figure this out. And we were working together and it was like, you know, we got help from another coworker who was more senior and it was phenomenal. But when I looked online, I couldn't find concrete examples. So I spent the time to write it down so that way more people can get a sense of what does it really mean using concrete examples. Same thing with Formic and Yup. Like Formic is about building forms and Yup is a validation library. And I needed to use Yup on the client project to validate data on content on the forms. But I couldn't figure out or I couldn't find anything online on specific examples like conditional validation. How do I use that? It sounds like a great library. It's really powerful, but I just needed a concrete example on how to do that in the code. And so after I got help from from my wonderful coworkers who had experience with this, I went and I said, let me just take the time to write an example down of, you know, how do you validate a date? How do you validate a string? How do you do conditional validation? I have an idea for dynamic keys because I recently had to do some validation where 
the actual property names change. Part of the property name actually changes. So it's it's hard to even now there there's so much content you can write where there may not be information online or maybe it's not written in the way that you can explain it. Like like when I go on YouTube, I will look at videos and I won't just look at one video. I will look at 10. Same thing with articles. I'll, I'll look at what's on Stack Overflow. I'll look at somebody's blog post and I'll look at three different versions and then pick the thing that works best for me. So I, I tend to you know, write blogs about things that I struggle to find online or I write things about what makes sense to me in the way that it makes sense to me, because maybe it'll make sense to somebody else. Yeah, that, that, that's cool. That's cool, actually, because it, in my case, I also had a similar approach to blogging where um, when I started, when I started blogging, it was more when I was looking at React's internal code base and trying to understand actually how it works. And when I did find out what I was looking for, I then wrote a blog post so that then I could share that and and i find that when you teach something that you found out yourself it sinks in a bit more as opposed to you learn it and then you just use it and then forget about it but then it's funny that now um i've not blogged as much and i've started doing more journals using um a kind of a markdown library where essentially um if i remember every single day after work i make a note about what i learned because i found that um it takes time to do a blog post to kind of craft the the narrative and edit it and then check for any mistakes and then obviously publishing it. So I found that um, these days I'm more kind of focusing on doing journals and then maybe when I think I've got a good kind of topic that I can go back and maybe write up again as a blog. But in the meantime, every single day, I'm writing something and keeping that kind of going as opposed to waiting for that blog public, publication, right? But actually just writing every single day as I come across kind of small problems, big problems, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really great idea. I do that for troubleshooting. So I have like a tip trips. I have a tips and tricks document for a specific language and for a specific framework. And whenever I encounter a problem, like a bug, I'll put that in the document and then I'll put the solution I, I found to actually fix it. So then when I encounter it again, I can look up this document. And it's so much faster than doing an entire blog post because, yeah, sometimes you just don't have time and you'd rather just watch Netflix that night than, and then do some work. So <laughs> it, that's pretty useful as well. Yeah, I like the, the idea of trying to pick out something new that you've learned every day, Carl. That's a, that's a really good one. I don't really do anything like that. But what I do for my blog posts is after I've figured out how to do something, I'll usually write down just like a one-liner and I have a just a notes document on my phone and I'll pull that up when I'm ready to write something new to look at what I have learned since the last time. And usually I'll just pick one of those topics and, and dive into it. But that's definitely... And it's very much a stream of consciousness for me. Like I'll just sit down, open Medium and just hammer it out in a day or two. And then go back the day after a third day or a fourth day and just edit it for content and grammar and things like that. But that's also a really good way. And I could probably make a lot of much shorter posts if I did something like that. Because mine tend to get into the 8 minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Because I really want to describe a, you know, probably a larger-ish problem that people might encounter or some concept. And kind of show how I learned it or how it finally sunk in for me. But that's... The short ones, definitely, there's 
real value to those, especially when you're just looking for something quick to to learn or to share. I just don't. I'm just, I guess, a verbose writer. (laughs) But I like the idea of the short ones. I definitely enjoy reading those too. You can really get some good, quick information from them. Yeah, I think also it's it's that thing of reflection, right? When you sit down and reflect upon, um, uh, say, a bug that you've been working on, and it, it makes you kind of think. I mean, for example, I'm looking at my notes now. I made a note the other day about cyphers, actually, because um, I initially I was using IDs for my tests, and obviously that's very, very flaky. So I then found out that it's actually better to use a a data a, a an um, attribute like data slash dash cy or something, and those attributes are more stable. So I'm, I made a note about that in my in my diary for the day, and then that means now when I look back, let's say on the week or on the month, those kind of uh, snippets are still there and they, and they still kind of stay fresh in memory as opposed to I've learned it and they're like oh that thing I learned two months ago what is it so i think it's, it's a good way to actually keep your knowledge and your kind of um things that you know current and um over time i think I, i've seen that so so far my programming has been has been has gone has been getting better slowly because i'm i'm thinking a lot more about what i'm learning every single day i'm, I'm saying oh this thing I'm working on now is a good topic for my little journal when i finish work today so yeah definitely recommend it highly to other people out there very nice so, Ronnie, is there anything that we haven't yet discussed that you think we should? <laughs> I'm not sure. I do have some ideas on books that uh, I'd recommend. But yeah, I think it's really essentially a journey. You know, every day you learn something new, you, you, you strengthen your skills and, you know, help other people along the way just as much as they've helped you along the way. I think that's a fantastic sentiment. I was so pleasantly surprised when I first got into development, how open the community is, how people are willing to share libraries and source code and ideas and mostly doing it on the side, on their own time, not for pay, just because they want to. And the same thing that it's it's always going to be a, a forever improving type of career. <laughs> the moment you stop learning or get comfortable is the moment that you're going to become obsolete. So yeah, it it can get a little tiring at times, but trying to keep up and keep learning new things is half the fun of this sort of a, a development career. Well, cool. So before we move into picks for today, where can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more, talk to you, find you online? Yeah. So elevateyourcode.com is my website. I'd be honored if people checked it out. My Gmail address is on there, ronniezilpolar at gmail.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, so I'd love to connect. Very cool. Very good. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps first thing. I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web, and then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. The other thing is, is that sometimes I miss stuff. I'll run things in development, works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up into the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens, stuff breaks. I didn't configure it right. AWS credentials, something like that, right? 
And so I need to get the error reporting back. But the other thing is, and this is something that my users typically don't give me information on, is I need to know if it's performing well, right? I need to know if it's slowing down because I don't want them getting lost into the Twitterverse because my app isn't fast enough. So I put Sentry in, I get all of the information about what's going right and what's going wrong, and then I can go in and I can fix the issues right away. So if you have an app that's running slow, you have an app that's having errors, you have an app that you're just getting started with, go check it out at Sentry.io slash four, that's F-O-R, Sentry.io slash four slash React, and use the code React Roundup, that's all one word, to get three months of their base team plan. All right. So let's move into the picks portion of the show where we talk about things that we're liking right now in our own lives. I will go first with a a new pick. It's new for me. It's been out for a few years, but it's new to me. It's a show that is on, I believe it's on Netflix, but I'll have to double check that. It's called Riviera. And it's a show that uh, stars Julia Stiles and... It's set in the south of France, at least for the first two seasons, which is just gorgeous. I had no idea it was so tropical there. But it's very much a thriller with lots of twists and turns and suspense. And it just every episode ends and you want to know what happens next. So I would definitely recommend if you're looking for something new, Riviera. It's been around for a little bit. So there's a few seasons to watch, but it's it's quite thrilling. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, it's it, and it's fun to see Julia Stiles because I haven't seen her in anything since most of the Jason Bourne stuff. So it was cool to see that she's still acting and and what she's getting up to. And I always like shows that take place in exotic locations. Something about that is just it makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah, it definitely makes me want to move to France and learn to speak French. <laughs> yeah, drop everything. <laughs> yeah. So TJ, do you want to go next? Sure. I'm going to pick some lights I got. So I became very self-conscious about my lighting situation in the last week. So I like binged per uh, purchased some lights. So Elgato makes these things called key lights. And basically they're, they're probably depending on your setup. So I do a lot of video work. So I have a little bit more of a, a budget and a need for a decent lighting setup. So they they're, they're something like 150 bucks each. So they're not super cheap lights. But what I like about them is that you can control them. They come with like a smartphone app that you can use to control brightness and different settings. So it's really nice if you have a situation like me where I have like windows flanking me and I, like I struggle constantly to get the lights to look correctly. So just being able to configure those at the very least, if you're a nerd, you can just have something else to tinker with that that can be kind of fun. So they work really well. So that's my pick. That's a good one. I think a lot of people are really getting into ring lights and all sorts of lights and cameras for since we're all working remote now. So definitely I, a good one. <laughs> I went down a black hole on YouTube looking into like lighting theory. And like there's, <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff like on lighting setups and it's it's overwhelming if you if you really dive into it but like i <laughs> i went into it with the mindset of like let me at least get like a base the basics down here and so i don't know marginal improvement is still improvement right <laughs> absolutely and without breaking the bank because you can spend i'm sure a small fortune on that kind of stuff yes yep <laughs> nice 
So Carl, what are you going to recommend for us? Yeah, so I've got a couple of things this time around. Um, first one is a book called Fool's Like Node. I've been doing a, um, a lot of kind of trying to get my backend skills up to scratch. And this book basically helps you build a kind of node API for serving a um, print shop kind of app where you basically um, have data from, uh, I think it's Unsplash, and it's kind of in the format of a um, shop, kind of a, a cart sheet, a shopping cart. And the book is really good because he goes, uh, the author is a guy called David Gutman, and he's actually part of the official Node.js team. And he, he kind of explains in depth how to start from Node with no framework. And then you go into using Express, and then he talks about things like um, authentication, uh, persistence, um, deployment, uh, databases, like all, all that kind of good stuff, right? So I, um, that's been a really good book for me lately. Uh, secondly, I mentioned that I've been taking um, notes on Markdown after work. And to do so, I'm using an app called Boost Note, which is basically a light, uh, lightweight kind of um, Markdown app you can just download onto your laptop and then just basically write notes in it and uh, the good thing about it is um, if let's say you want to search for a term in the future you can just kind of search because it's, it's basically like small and text and lastly I've been volunteering to teach kids uh, about coding um, front-end mainly and uh, I, would, I would say that it's I'd say it's been a learning experience um, because you go from let's say writing blogs to people who are who are developers, so they kind of have a background knowledge to um, kids who are like 13, 14, who are just getting started, getting started with coding. And now you have to think about, okay, if I want to explain this concept, I have to go down to kind of basics and really make it simple. And I find that it's, it's challenging how I'm thinking about, about programming and actually explaining things. And actually, if I don't know something, I have to go, I have to go away and research it and then come back and say to the, to the children, um, this is how it works. So... Um, if you are able to um, find a kind of um, place to do so, for me, I'll post the one I'm, I'm, I'm doing it at in the UK. Um, it's called Ignite Hubs. And yeah, it's, it's a really um, good experience. And I would say definitely if you can do it, um, do it. That sounds like a very challenging thing that would really make sure you know your stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kids yeah. can be completely unforgiving <laughs> about that sort yeah. of thing. We've got, um, so the, the, the kids who are mentoring some of them are doing the free code camp, um, HTML, CSS, JavaScript course. The other ones are, are doing the CS50 course, right? So you can imagine they're doing like C, Python, all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, it's really a good challenge to kind of um, also make sure that you know your stuff yeah. <laughs> as well as being able to kind of teach as well. So yeah, definitely highly recommended. Good for you. That's awesome though. Way to That's a fantastic way to give back. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So, uh, Ronnie, do you have anything that you would like to plug as a pick for this week? Yeah. So uh, my company is Apelight, and we have apprenticeships for people who are interested in getting into development. And they're very welcoming for career changers, which is fantastic. I have some books that I recommend that have been some of my favorite books from authors that have helped develop my technical skills. Sandy Metz, anything by Sandy Metz is phenomenal. She's got a book called Pooter, Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby and 99 Bottles of OOP. They're very, very good if you want to learn uh, object-oriented design. Martin Fowler has two books that I really enjoyed, Refactoring and Clean Architecture. And Kent Beck has Test-Driven Development by Example. I really enjoyed that for learning TDD. And just 
coming back to thinking about development holistically, you know, mental health is really important. You want to be able to show up every day and be a good team player. So Smiling Mind is a meditation app that's free, created by a not-for-profit that I highly recommend to just learning how to stop and take a breath and just be mindful. Those are my top picks for just a holistic approach to development. I think that everybody needs that kind of reminder right now to breathe and to try and be kind to ourselves. One question I had about your company and the apprenticeships, is that remote? Like, could anybody in any part of the country or outside of the country get in on that? Or is it more located by region or by offices? Aethlet has offices across the country, um, Chicago, LA, New York. We've even got an office in London. And the great thing about now, the one positive is that everything is remote. So you have access to things you not, might not normally have had. So we actually were super excited to restart our uh, next apprenticeship cohort. And it is going to be remote. So it's wonderful. Excellent. So anybody anywhere in the U.S. could potentially take part in it. Yeah, I would say uh, go to apelight.com. Excellent. We'll have all those links in the show notes. So we'll make sure that anybody who wants more information can find it. But thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really fun talking to you, hearing about your career transitions and changes and your very in-depth knowledge on testing. Because I think that's something that every software engineer can benefit from and get better at. Thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next time on React Roundup. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.